Hi everyone, I'm Jen Johnson. This is Thought by Thought Healing. I'm a chronic pain coach and I talk about the mind-body connection from a Christian perspective. I got to interview Christy Weepy today and it was amazing. You're not going to want to miss this. In this episode, we are going to talk about things like pressure and how that can turn into chronic pain and how to um, work with the pressures of culture and our inner pressures we talk about what pain reprocessing therapy entails. We talk about the Boulder back pain study that she was a part of, a big part of, and three tools to remain pain-free. So I'm gonna read you a short bio on her and then we'll get to the interview. Christy Weepy is a psychotherapist specializing in the treatment of chronic pain, anxiety, and depression, and the founder of the Better Mind Center. Christy has been a key collaborator on the development and the research of the pain reprocessing therapy treatment modality. She lectures nationally on psychotherapeutic interventions to treat chronic pain and is committed to cross-disciplinary collaboration between mental health and physical medicine. Christy is also a recovered chronic pain patient herself. The healing process was so profoundly transformational for the quality of life for her that she has dedicated her career to supporting others through their recoveries. So. I hope you enjoy, like it, share it, subscribe if it's helpful. Thanks, guys. Bye. Christy, thank you so much for being here today. I have been very much so looking forward to um, just talking with you in this and having this conversation. So thanks so much for showing up. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to it as well. Awesome. Um. Okay, so let's let's just start by you telling us a little bit about who you are and um, your story of healing and where you find yourself kind of today. I'd love to. So I'll start with the present and then back up. Okay. Uh, my name is Christy. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in chronic pain, anxiety, and depression. I have a team of other fantastic clinicians who do the same, but I started off as a chronic pain person. I mean, I still identify as a chronic pain person in many ways as a mind-body person. I had tons of pain. I usually say it was like head, shoulders, knees, and toes. It just started feeling like Humpty Dumpty. I think a lot of people, when they look back on their pain story, can relate to this. Like there might be one incident, and I can share mine, that really sparked the throes of my pain journey. But when yeah. I look back, like I was kind of always a sickish kid. Kid. Like I can remember all kinds of symptoms that would come and go that I didn't necessarily seek treatment for when I was much younger and through high school, I was super anxious, but I would not have used that word that what like that language was not uh, was French to me. So I looking back, I think it was building for a really long time. Yeah. Yep. I can resonate but, with that. Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting the way that it presents in childhood compared to adulthood the there are some nuances there it's not always strict pain but mm -hmm. you can tell like your your nervous system and your immune system are working a little bit too hard yeah absolutely mm -hmm. but there was one incident that really set it off for me so in undergraduate I went to USC twice so I went there for my undergraduate studies and my graduate studies and when I was an undergrad I did have knee pain but when you have one symptom and it's only it was only triggered by movement I wasn't doing a ton of treatment for it. I would rest. I thought it was exercise induced. It was just tracking. Like there's something wrong with my knees. 
Hmm. But there was a, a gap year that I had in between undergrad and grad school. And I took a gap year because I couldn't quite figure out what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to do grad school of some sort. I wasn't sure when I wanted to start. I was like really stressed out coming out of undergrad because I ran very stressed out as a person. And I went to the gym to just get a workout in. And I was trying to do, I don't know, I don't know who I thought I was this day because I'm like not particularly flexible. And I tried to stretch into a split, like slowly. Okay. And, and I just... I fell into it like I it was not slowly at all and I just oh kind of forced my legs into a I did get to a split technically but I literally tore my um what's the word I tore my hamstring there was a more specific spot I always say I broke my butt and it felt like I broke my butt just like ripped the mm -hmm. hamstring muscle off my butt bone okay which was like an extremely painful acute oh, injury yeah <laughs> definitely needed what? medical treatment <laughs> it hurt a lot did you say that you did get into the split position or you did oh, I d oh yes I did and there was you a did. moment where I was like in excruciating pain but I was also so impressed that I got down there I was like well uh -huh. I am here I have accomplished something it just took me ripping my butt muscle off of its bone to get there ripping your body apart to make <laughs> your goals come true got it okay <laughs> <laughs> that would be the that would be the title of my my memoir from this period. Yeah. So I really hurt myself, but because I was in such a accumulation of anxiety and stress, both over my lifetime and in this period where I was literally in a gap between what I want to do with my life and do I want to stay in Los Angeles? I'm from the East Coast. Um, what's my next move? Mm -hmm. So I injured myself during a time of such intense fear and stress that the injury technically healed after about three to six months Yep. and my pain was worse on my day of treatment graduation or what have you than it was the day that I injured myself okay so mm. once that began and you never really know how much you need your butt until you can't really use it it's like I couldn't sit I couldn't drive I had to rearrange my entire life to be horizontal essentially I had to lie down a lot. So it's attempting to keep my, uh, this little job that I had in my gap year, I was attempting to like stay as engaged in my life as I could, but I really couldn't sit, walk or stand. Like, unless I was lying down, I was in a lot of pain mm -hmm. and I didn't know what was going on because all of my doctors were telling me your injury has healed. And then that's when this kind of strange messaging started in, like, maybe you're just really prone to injury or, Maybe your muscles are weaker than most people's, or maybe your body is older internally than your age. They, I had one doctor tell me, you are, uh, your body is twice as old as, as you are. And yeah. I was like, okay, so I'm, tw I'm 22, so my body's 44, so when I'm 44, it's gonna be like I'm 88. I was like, this is not a good trajectory. And so the stress was mounting there. Yeah. And then, yeah. that's when Humpty Dumpty syndrome set in. It was like my, my neck started hurting the next year. My head started hurting a few uh, weeks after that, that turned into vertigo I had bilateral wrist pain. My knee pain had never gone away. That original thing that I had kind of kept an eye on through undergraduate. Oh, right. And then it was just full blown. I had, I, I literally had pain from head to toe, had no idea what was causing it, had no central point person or practitioner that was able to help me understand the connection so in my mind I just had 
like a dozen desperate injuries. Yeah, you were Humpty Dumpty. I have never heard that reference and it's perfect. Yeah. It just, it, yeah, because every time you try to solve one thing, another one tacks on. Yeah. Yeah. When you're not treating the right thing, for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. So here you are, you're in this, you're just living your life, what you think mm -hmm. is normal life, except for that you've been told your body is just a disaster, yeah, which is outside yes. of your control. So mm -hmm. you're just, you're, I assume you're just coping at this point in time. Just coping the best I could, but it took a huge hit on my relationship to myself, to my relationships with friends. It was difficult to explain what I was going through because yep. there was, I looked the same, uh -huh. Um, and this was all during this period of what was meant to be a pause year for me, a chance to bring my stress level down to get, get, like, get my bearings to know what to do. But I ran out the clock on that year and I mm. had decided somewhere in this, I am, am going to go to grad school. I'm going to go back to USC to get my master's in social work. And I began that journey with all of those pain symptoms. I like, started day one with all these different I looked like a bionic woman. I had braces on my knees, braced both my knees, both my wrists. I had a little heating pad that I would wear on my neck. I had a little pillow that I'd carry around to put on my, first of all, the desks in college campuses are designed for seven-year-olds. So there's even a, someone without pain is not comfortable in those desks, but it was miserable to me. So I started off yes. in that much pain. And again, the stress level was just going up and up and up. So that program is the two-year program that first year was spent in horrific pain. Yeah. Uh, trying lots of different types of treatments. None of them were really making sense. But going into my second year of grad school, and I had put enough together to recognize that there has, there has to be something about my stress level that's at least making the pain worse. I wasn't understanding it as causal, but I was seeing yeah. it as a correlate. Yeah, it's a big difference big difference. It opened my mind to it, but I still was not confident that there was a way to be out of pain, but I was curious about a way to lower my pain. Yes. And that second year of grad school, just through luck and serendipity, and I'm so grateful for this, I met Alan Gordon, who works at USC. And Alan Gordon is the director of the Pain Psychology Center. He really spearheaded pain reprocessing therapy, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And he, when he saw, I mean, he met me, he was like, what's happening? Because he could see physically all of these uh, like braces that I had on or what have you. And he introduced me to the world of mind-body healing, opened the door for me, gave me my first Sarno book. And it was just off to the races from that point. It clicked really, really, really fast. I felt super warm and receptive to the idea. I had a ton of support in terms of getting the resources. Once that door was finally opened, it was like, kind of a deluge of positive information and things started coming back together really quickly for me. And we just go back one second. I just, what you talked about with the importance of recognizing that, that the emotions or the stress is causal. Um, I, I, I think that's so important to recognize that it's the cause of it and therefore what we're targeting, because I remember in my own journey, and I've forgotten about this until you said it, that at one point in time, I recognized, uh-oh, 
this is related to how I respond to stress or this is related to stress. And I remember just sobbing and telling a friend mm -hmm. I broke myself because of my inability um, to mm -hmm. handle emotions in my life. I broke my emotional system. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I mean, that's such a judgmental thing to do to yourself to think I caused all this and I've ruined myself. Um, but to realize it, it, that it's, it's, um, it's not being influenced by my stress level. It is caused by it. And therefore I can, I can adapt and I can reverse this and change this. It just takes, it gives you the power back to, mm, yes. to realize it's not just yes. the cause it's the cure too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people relate to that initial re resistance and difficulty with it accepting that, exploring that, exploring the idea of stress as causal because of this overwhelming recognition. Did, did I do this? What was yeah. I missing this whole time? Why didn't, how did I get to this point? Like it's so severe and debilitating and it's, it's tough when, when our brain takes us down that path, it's just an, an unbelievable lack of information in yeah. the medical field. Like a lot of us are open to it once the information is given to us, but we're not presented with the information coupled with likely an emotional toolkit that was missing some pretty important pieces none of neither of those things are our fault we can eventually take responsibility for that right but they're not they're not our doing yeah yeah okay so we were you're 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 creating a connection um with alan he's mm -hmm. he's opening your eyes to all this stuff and what was that what was that journey like for you so the um, summer before I started intern, the clinical internship, I did a clinical internship with him, uh, my second year, my final year at uh, that grad program. I was reading the books. I was reading all the books we read, right? <laughs> the Sarno book, the Schubiner book, all of it was clicking really fast. So by the time I started my clinical internship, just the knowledge, and I, I feel really lucky. I know this isn't the case for everyone. Um, just the knowledge of what was going in my body probably reduced my symptoms by about 70%. Yeah. Okay. And which, and for anyone listening, I cannot emphasize this enough. That is not the case for most people in right. the self-recovery space. I had a lot of resources on my side. I had a lot of luck and privilege and support and things that allowed me to work through my relationship with fear in a way that I think was smoother than, I don't want to draw comparisons. It felt somewhat, it, I felt lucky. And I, I, for anyone listening, I cannot emphasize enough that is not always the case. And if having the knowledge of what's going on in your body does not create symptom reduction, you are in the vast majority of cases, that's okay. It's workable. It's just a starting place. Right. For me, it was really powerful. And again, I literally was working at the pain psychology center with a pioneer in this field. So could I be more lucky? No, that's right. another reason why some of that was really smooth, but the remaining 30% of um, symptom reduction that I was working through, I was actually doing while I was actively learning to treat patients from the same perspective. So it's just wild year of a lot of growth curves, a little bit of imposter syndrome, uh -huh. but it was a, a neat space for me because everything that I was using with my clients, I was using for myself. So it felt like double the exposure, double the practice. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it was through that that final 30% of symptom reduction where I did a lot of my self-compassion work, let's say, like understanding the connection, not just back to that knee pain that I had in undergraduate or that injury that I had when I was going into grad school, but all the way back to, 
oh, I have been relating to my nervous system in an incredibly intense and harsh way for as long as I can remember. And until that shifts, there is always going to be another symptom. It will just iterate and iterate and iterate. And that's a, yeah. Can you unpack that um, for the listeners? Like this idea, you've been relating to your nervous system in this harsh way um, for so long. Um, For most people, what, what is that? What does that mean? I was mean into myself. I was harsh with myself. I treated myself with a a level of intensity that I don't think anyone deserves. This, this, uh, I never said no. I said yes to everything, anything. I did not know what a boundary was. I had no upper limit to my uh, productivity threshold. So I would push myself at the pace they're like this this is crazy to think back on but if I and this is true like if I were at the grocery store or if I were even in um my home and I was had the opportunity to run instead of walk like if no one was watching at the grocery store and I was like well I need to get to the end of the aisle I'm not kidding I would literally just start running because I could it's like well I could move faster so I don't die and that was the same thing that was happening to me in Internally, this idea of mm-hmm. move faster, do more, keep going. Yeah, and yes, 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 yes. There's just I had no connection to what my nervous system felt like, so I had no upper limit. Like there was no when I would say no when when my body broke, when mm-hmm. I was like crying on the floor in pain. No, I'd still say yes to things. I was still saying yeah. sure I'll take on more clients or still sure I'll whatever it was. So recognizing that, that the pressure I was putting on myself, the expectations that I had of myself, the way that my entire compass was built around doing, performing, and completing, that all had to get dismantled for me to start building my compass, my internal compass, my the compass of my nervous system back around prioritizing my well-being, being in touch with what my body was feeling like on a moment-to-moment basis, being in touch with what it felt like to speak to myself in those intense ways, being in touch with what it felt like to have those standards of myself. Yeah. That was where the bulk of my work was. Yeah. That, that self-pressure that we put on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we get that, we get that from so many places, right? But where do you see it primarily? Do you see it in, in like, external source of the family or do you see it in in culture and just this driven culture that we that we live in that the more we do the more we're seen the more we perform Mm -hmm. the more valuable we are um in uh, let's just ask this in your patients you find that mostly from from that sort of external source or Mm -hmm. or from family pressure i love that question and that you're identifying both places i would say the the culture piece the toxicity of our culture and the productivity focus that we have at least in a lot of parts of the states um and a lot of places worldwide that's so strong that i would say it takes an active force in your family or within your community system working against that Mm. for you to not be negatively impacted because it's it's just it's the uh, it's the current. That's where the stream is going. 
So I would say it can be worsened if within your family unit, you also have people who kind of trend towards intensity. But in the absence of someone really buffering you from that, which is not like, um, that's not nothing. Like that's, that's someone in your life who's kind of already taken the steps to have intentionality around slowing down. Yep. In the absence of that, I think by and large, people are going to be impacted by the going, by the doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting to ask you all sorts of questions. How has that been in, in, um, the better mind clinic? Is it clinic? Better mind clinic? Uh, better, better mind center mm-hmm. center okay yeah. um how has that been for you balancing that that pressure because you're oh my gosh, it's wild. amazing and and so mm-hmm. good and we need it and yet mm-hmm. um i i think i'm part and part asking because i've had this struggle too of like okay i'm starting yeah. something and then and then keeping that perfectionism a little bit at bay and this mm-hmm. how's that been for you I would say it's been ongoing, (laughs) something I continue to work on and my body hasn't stopped talking to me. So we, as a group, do the other clinicians on my team, we work to have specific meetings where we are checking in on each other's nervous systems, just having a pause and saying, what's coming up? What's coming up for you in terms of your caseload? What's coming up for you with just sitting with other people who are in intensity or in pain? So we work to have a conversation around the impact of this work in general on our on our systems. By and large, people who are in this field are prone to the same types of sensitivities that lead yeah. to the development of chronic pain. So we need to be right. careful in the healing space. Um, and then also, uh, apart from just the impact of sitting with people who are walking through this themselves, there's also the impact, and you were speaking to this, of there's no end to the work like there's millions of people suffering from chronic pain so we could both think we could talk for hours and we would never run out of ideas in terms of where else can we go with this who else can we help how else can we help how else can we iterate and it's a balance for me and it's an ongoing practice of um letting that feel exciting letting that feel even buzzy in my system in some ways like I, I am drawn to that I enjoy the rev and the pull yeah and then making that commitment over and over again not to abandon my connection with myself and my body and to listen if I don't listen my body will get louder every single time and I'm, I'm grateful for that it's a, it is a sharp it's a sharp system if if I start having some tension in my shoulder and I ignore it it will grow, it will grow, it will grow, it will grow into my neck, it will grow into my head, it will grow into vertigo. Like it, my body, my body won't abandon me. Yeah, so sure won't. Like yeah, mind. it's got your back for sure. It's got my back. Yeah. And it's like, it's just a matter of listening. It's it's better for me to listen when the murmurs are quiet because my body knows how to get loud and it will. Yeah, yeah, love it. Thank you. Thank you for answering that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's tough it, it, it is tough. And I think, I, I think part of the reason I just asked that is because, uh, you know, uh, both your listeners and my listeners are on this journey and it can be so, um, I think it can become disheartening when your body keeps talking to you. Um, and you mm-hmm. feel like, oh, well, if my body's talking to me, that means that I failed. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing this journey wrong and, 
Um, and in reality, it's, it's, it's not, it's talking to you and helping, helping us to do this in a healthy way. That's really mm -hmm. uh, fulfilling for me at which ends up being fulfilling for the other people around me also. And we're having to battle that, that message we're getting from, from culture. Mm -hmm. And, um, it, I think even from people who, who love us, who, are are part of that stream like you're talking about and so we're getting like yeah. very personal messages in our own lives so to to take I, I guess to take heart and know that it's this is this is this is the journey mm -hmm. we're on we're in it right we're all experiencing it you me and everybody listening absolutely yeah. absolutely and I people might have different opinions on this it might this might feel disempowering to some and empowering to others but I for me, I've accepted a long time ago. My nervous system is always going to be sensitive. It's I'm always going to be the person. If something startles me, like if someone pops in this room and I wasn't expecting, my response is going to be 10 times bigger than, than other anyone sitting next to it. Just how I am. I'm wired that way. I was trained into that through in certain ways. And I believe I have drastically lowered my baseline. Like my, my, stress level and my anxiety level has come down at baseline yeah. and my baseline is always sensitive and that just it is what it is like it doesn't work for me to constantly be battling against that and being frustrated with oh my gosh one day of moving too quickly through my, my meetings and already my body is talking to me like having that kind of resistance just doesn't feel good it doesn't feel um, I can go in a downward spiral pretty quickly around that. Just so much frustration. So it helps me to just accept like that. My body has my back quickly, yeah. <laughs> profoundly yeah. and sensitively. And that's how I am. I just need to listen. Yeah. Yeah. There. And I think you're right for people listening. For some people, that's incredibly empowering to know yeah, I can just thank my nervous system for sending me a message that this was startling or or life is a little mm -hmm. bit hard right now. And and instead of responding with self-judgment of like, I cannot believe I am in a flare-up right now. Like, how dare I? I have done years mm -hmm. of work. Um, and so, yeah, I can see how it would be empowering to say, yeah, I'm, I'm human. And I live in a broken world. And of course, I'm going to have reactions in my mm -hmm. nervous system to things that are happening. Um, well, also, I just want to take note of the hope that you're talking about, though, which is that that threshold, we're not mm -hmm. talking about staying in a place of hypervigilance and no. um, constantly protecting ourselves because we are in danger. Um, we are safe. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we can lower that to to our standard is that we're safe. And sometimes yeah. our nervous system says, oh, Am I? Yeah. You know? sure? Yeah. Double check it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's confirm that. That's yeah. a hugely important qualifier. I think there's a there is a massive difference between being in chronic pain when yeah. you can't make much of your symptoms. They're not rising and falling in a way that helps you develop insight. You can't listen to a bunch of noise. You, it's just too much. When your pain is all the time, all you can gain from that is. Uh, my anxiety is through the roof. My stress is through the roof. I need to work on reappraising re all of this. Yeah. When you're out of that chronic loop, for me, 
I, I'm out of the chronic loop. If I have rises and falls, if my body starts talking to me, I can make something of that because my baseline is now quiet. Yes. So when the murmur starts, I go, oh, there has been a change. My attention is now being directed to whatever the heck needs my focus or attention or maybe me, I just need my focus or attention. Yeah. And I, I think those things are really, really different. It's, it's, I don't know why, but the picture is coming up for me of if you're out to a group dinner and like everybody starts talking to you at the same time and, and you're like, I, I didn't hear anybody Help. because you're all talking. <laughs> um, whereas when you're sitting down with a friend and they have something to say, you can, you can hear when they start talking. And, and I, I think yeah. that's how I picture what you're, what you're talking about is mm-hmm. being able that's to get the message. Analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So. So at what point in time did you start working with Alan Gordon, Howard Schubiner around mm-hmm. pain reprocessing therapy, the um, Boulder back pain study? Let's, let's dive into yeah. that. I, I was, I, I have had a lot of people on this show, including like Howard Schubiner and I don't know, um, not Alan, but I, I actually don't think we've talked about the Boulder back pain study on oh. this mm-hmm. show. So I would Happy love to. to hear your, I don't know what you would want listeners to um, walk away with understanding about that study. Awesome. Okay. So when I joined uh, uh, along with Alan, the, the makings of pain reprocessing therapy had been in the works for years, both due to his contributions and many others. Howard's, mm-hmm. I mean, we could, uh, Dr. Schumanner's, Mark Lumley, we could draw this all the way back to Sarno and, and even before that. Um, but the idea of naming it and packaging it as a set of techniques that we call pain reprocessing therapy, yeah. that started in about 2017. Okay. So in 2017, 2018, we ran this study out of UC Boulder, out of Tor Wager lab, Tor Wager's lab there under the direction of Yoni Ashar. And we had a chance to take this treatment process that we knew worked because we had been doing it with our patients for in in clinical practice for years and we sharpened it up and said this is now a set of techniques that looks like this and progresses like this we call it pain reprocessing therapy let's test it against an open label placebo it was uh just essentially salt water injections into the back and treatment as usual, meaning people did not get any new treatments. They were just doing whatever else they had been doing previous to joining the study. Specific to their back pain. Specific to their back pain. So we, um, pain reprocessing therapy can be used for any sensation in any part of the body that you are considering to be neural circuit in nature for the purpose of a randomized controlled trial. You're, we're going to limit it to back pain. Yeah. So there are 150 people in the study at large, about 50 people went into each group, treatment as usual, placebo, and the pain reprocessing therapy group. For the 50 people who ended up in pain reprocessing therapy, they got nine sessions, one-on-one sessions. The first session was with Howard Schubiner. So Dr. Schubiner's role was making sure that the, the people enrolling in our study had the type of back pain that we were gonna treat. So we're ruling out anything that's massively wrong with the, with the back, a structural problem, a pathological problem, something that should have been treated medically long ago. I think out of the fifth, the, um, I think there were like 53, 55 max people that, uh, 
attempted to come into that were randomized to pain reprocessing therapy group, only a couple of them met qualifications for structural disorders, which speaks to the prevalence, right? Like yep. if you're just taking 55 people at random, 50 of them were neural circuit in nature. So it just speaks to just how many people are dealing with this. So it's interesting because when this study came out, I I took it to um, my mentor actually um, and asked her to help me understand it. Um, some of the language, some, some of the more complex language. And, mm-hmm. um, and we got an argument because uh, <laughs> the way that she interpreted it was that um, because of that filtering process, that that meant that there were no structural abnormalities that mm. were part of the study. Does, does, does yeah. my clarification make sense? So yes, for her, that meant does. nobody with herniated discs was allowed into yeah. the the study. Uh-huh. Could you could you just talk about that a little bit? Oh yeah, we have people with all kinds of findings on their MRIs for sure. We had one um, client, and Alan, we've written Alan has written about this um, in his his book that had literally an S curve scoliosis. Nice. Uh, like his, the spine was literally contorted. So what Dr. Schubiner was doing was not saying. If anything shows up on your MRI, you have structural pain and you don't qualify for pain reprocessing therapy. The vast majority of, take the study aside, the vast majority of adults walking through space have normal abnormalities in their spine. By the time people are 30, uh, over 50% yeah. of asymptomatic 30-year-olds have disc degeneration. Disc degeneration just means your body is getting older. Like from the, That's true of 100% of people. We all have disc degeneration. Yeah. And same is true for lots of things, right? Like disc protrusions, disc bulges. So there's all kinds of things that came up on the MRI. But what we're looking for is, are those normal abnormalities causal to your pain or are they incidental findings? Like we have um, wrinkles on our skin. You can see them. They're abnormalities. We didn't start off with wrinkles, but they don't hurt. They have absolutely nothing to do with what our body is feeling physically. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to segue a little bit here, but it just seems like the right time. What kind of language have you heard um, doctors use, specifically back doctors, um, that that scare patients um, into, well, scare them into fear that causes pain? Mm-hmm. Uh, do, you, do you have any examples of, of language that's unhelpful? Sure. Um, fragile. Your spine is fragile. Okay. Uh, your spine is spine, or we could talk about it. We'll use it, this as an example of back pain. This happen any any part of the body. Fragile, prone to injury. Okay. Uh, we hear that all the time. You're you're just prone yeah. to injury. Um, yeah. rate radiating pain is used very frequently in, in inaccurately. The idea of I found a disc bulge up here, two millimeter disc bulge. You have pain way over here. Uh, it's just radiating pain from the disc bulge. It's just radiating down there (laughs) okay what no it has literally nothing to do with the disc bulge but if you find something in the mri um and then other things just like big language around what are actually small incidents like a tiny disc bulge doesn't need to be you don't you don't need to say you don't need to say that like you can note it in the report but you don't need to make a big deal of oh my god this something is bulging out of your spine or you have a your bone is great your bones are graining on each other there's a bone on bone problem here yeah, it's the, like it's 
not coming from malice, but P there's so many medical providers that are trained to just find, again, it's essentially like a wrinkle on the inside of your body. Like imagine if someone saw a wrinkle on the corner of my eyes and they're like, oh my God, so that's huge. It's like a crater that must hurt so badly. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's just uh, normal. I love you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's so much fear mongering around the language and you're right. It's, it's not, if you don't understand pain neuroscience, then it doesn't hurt to say those things. Yep. But when you understand the role of this, I mean, they're basically just scaring you right into pain. Um, bless their hearts. I want to add to the end of that. Um, yeah. Yep. Um, okay. Thank and, you. And that degenerative, I think of all of the words I've heard, yeah. the one that's most common and I think scares people one of the ones that scares people the most is that idea of uh, my spine is degenerating. I have degenerative dis disorder. It's this idea yeah. of if I'm in this much pain now and it's just crumbling under, like before my eyes as I age, that word freaks people out. And I think it's wholly unhelpful. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So you've got 50. Yes. We got 50 people, people who randomized in. Yes. Yeah. They get one, um, it's a screening call with Dr. Schubiner, but it's also an educational call with Dr. Schubiner. So okay. he's helping yep. people understand, hey, there's uh, the the brain plays a role in all pain experiences. Here's what I'm seeing in your medical records. Here's what I'm, um, here's the model with that with which we work. The brain is responsible for creating sensation. The brain has the potential to create any sensation in any part of the body. Your medical record is clear this is where we're going here. You're going to be linked up with either Alan or Christy, me. So uh, Alan and I were the treating psychotherapists. He did okay. sort of a warm handoff to us. And for those 50 people, we met, I, that the clients met with either Alan or myself eight times over the course of four weeks. So we met with them twice a week for 50 minute sessions doing psychotherapy, doing a very targeted form of psychotherapy where we are educating them about the brain-based nature of pain, helping them gather evidence to understand this model as it specifically applies to their case, mm -hmm. helping them cognitively understand and conceptualize their pain differently from there's something wrong to my body to my body is adaptive and resilient. There are sensations that I'm feeling that are non-dangerous and safe. Mm -hmm. helping them to physically, physiologically respond to their sensations differently through the use of meditative techniques like somatic tracking, where we're bringing their attention to the fear-inducing stimuli of their pain and working to down-regulate their nervous system at the same time, mm -hmm. doing a little bit of work around helping them address any other sort of emotional threats in their periphery that might be leading to the upregulation of their nervous system, which contributes to higher pain levels. Oh, so you did, you did touch on the emotional, um, components of that. So I assume you're talking about protective personality traits and, and, mm -hmm. and self-pressure and, and that type of thing. Yes. Okay. We were limited in that we had eight sessions. Yeah. But the bridge is pretty clear when you get someone's focus like that twice a week for four weeks. And we're having so many conversations around threat and perceived threat yeah the way that the brain has no ability to yeah. distinguish the difference between real threat and perceived threat and we have a really strong reaction to both of them and we don't have any ability to gauge in the moment like our body responds quickly um we don't have the ability to distinguish between psychological 
psychological, emotional threat and physical threat. Like pain is the output, no matter what sort of threat is input. There's a pretty clear bridge over to, well, what else in your surroundings, in your environment, in your environment might be offsetting these danger signals. So we did get to touch on it. Okay. Um, Yeah. And and interestingly, and kind of hopefully, I think when we think about needing to get this treatment to literally millions of people and not, not everyone in the world has resources for years of psychotherapy, it was not something we camped out on for very long. I mean, we only had eight sessions with them and we had to start from square one. So yes, we talked about emotions, but a lot of it is teaching people the model, teaching them to understand when you're perceiving information in this way, it through a threatening lens, when whatever it is, again, in your periphery, if it's a mother-in-law that you is, you're scaring you or you have difficulty drawing a boundary with, or if it is your work environment, that's incredibly stressful or fill in the blank if you can teach them the framework of when threat is being input pain is the output the hope is that they're able to also take that framework and use it on their own yes yeah i love it okay um that lends to a question that i wanted to ask and you're kind of answering but let's just get more pinpointed Mm -hmm. what is the difference um how do you see yourself different than a psychotherapist that is helping somebody work through emotional um, parts of their lives. Um, so if somebody comes to you or they come to, they go to just a, a psychotherapist, what's the difference between those two things? And part of the, the reason I'm asking this question is for people who are listening, what should they be looking for if they're, if they're looking for some therapy one-on-one, yeah. what are they looking for if they also mm-hmm. have symptoms, chronic symptoms? Great question. So I want to know, how things work. I think a lot of people are comforted by understanding why are we taught, why are we working on this right now in treatment? As I think I I had this experience as a chronic pain patient. I went to some therapist who said they specialize in chronic pain. She never brought it up. She she was like, oh, your neck hurts. Okay. What happened? Uh, What was your childhood like? But there was no connection. I I would tell her a story about what happened when I was eight years old. And then I'd leave the room being like, is that just supposed to kind of by osmosis start impacting my my pain levels? And there is absolutely something to be said about getting an emotional shape. The, the way there is a way of reducing your anxiety levels that can have a positive effect on your pain levels. So it's not for nothing when people do more general emotional processing work in therapy. I like to know how things work. So pain reprocessing therapy is a clear framework for understanding how we perceive threat and essentially the world around us in addition to how we perceive sensation. So the backbone of this treatment says there are sensations in your body that you had previously been perceiving as dangerous. Pain means something's wrong. I need to get treatment. I need to rest. I need to ice. And you're shifting to pain is a sensation that feels dangerous, but it's actually safe. I can think about it in comforting terms. I conceptualize my body as strong. And I can respond to the sensation in a down-regulating way. I don't need to avoid that sensation. I can explore it all I want. Yeah. And that same framework is used to process any other fear-inducing stimuli. So if you are afraid of the emotion of sadness, then we're going to talk about an example of a situation that made you sad, or we're going to understand the context for which you developed your fear of sadness. We're going to notice how your body responds when sadness starts to come on. Does it lock up? Does your pain kick up? Do you start feeling fluttery? 
do you start just kind of numbing out? And then we're going to help you attend to that sense that whatever sensation is coming up for you in the experience of that emotion, we're going to help you experience that as safe. We're going to move you towards it. We're going to explore it the same way that we explored your pain sensation. No more avoidance, no more fear. We're going to help you reappraise all of these things, the sensations inside your body as safe and non-threatening and as many things as we can help you appraise outside of your body as safe or safer or non-threatening or less threatening. Mm -hmm. Love it. So if you're going to a a traditional therapist, you're going to talk through each one of those detailed scenarios and Mm -hmm. it's dragged out and uh, becomes a long process Yeah. when we can learn the framework. Basically it, it, um, it empowers us to do a lot of this work with a broad stroke, right? Like we get to yeah. understand it in a, in a big picture way that um, just really empowers us to move forward mm-hmm. in those, in those detailed ways without having to do all these sessions. Is that fair? I say it's broad, the way that you describe that is perfect. And I love what you're saying around. It's a broad stroke. It might not be easy, but it simplifies it considerably. Yeah. It is not easy. Mm-hmm. You are, you are, and I, I want to just come on record agreeing with you. It is so empowering to have those tools and to understand how it works. Um, but just because you have the tools doesn't mean that you don't have to use them and do the work. <laughs> Absolutely. Very and just because you have massively for so many reasons, not the least of which is there are times in your life where the situation around you is threatening there are times where you're you're in a pinch or there are um identities of humans who walk through the world feeling more unsafe than other identities of humans right like i'm a white person i that i'm a white woman there's some stuff that comes with that there's some privilege there's some safety and there's also some threat and that can iterate in a million different ways in terms of how we walk through space so the way that we're perceiving the world around us we have some ownership of it and that can feel really empowering the way i'm taking in information I want to learn no matter what's coming at me to have a sense of safety in my body. It's like really yes. internalize that sense of empowerment. But not everyone is up against the same threat level. So right. that, uh, either s- situationally, circumstantially, who you um, some, that might be shifting or it could have to do with who you are and, and how the world perceives you and your identity. So I just want to mention that as well as a, as a legitimate and sometimes very difficult barrier that a lot of this treatment is about internalizing your sense of safety there's a lot that happens when you leave the therapy room yeah it's there's just this balance of strength and empowerment of realizing this is perceived that threat and not um i'm not actually in danger and there's also this gentleness that of which we treat ourselves of but yes Wow. Mm -hmm. There is, there is some things in life that is really difficult and, and maybe things that I'm perceiving are real. Um, and it doesn't mean I have to react in danger, but I can be gentle with myself and recognize this is difficult. And, um, and that treating ourselves with grace in in those, in those moments, kind of that you're talking about uh, specifically Mm -hmm. an example. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Where are we? I can, I can kind of, wrap up where the study landed us what we found out let's do that so by the end of those eight weeks excuse me eight sessions it's only four weeks which is crazy um 98 of the participants randomized into pain reprocessing therapy improved their pain scores 
reduce their pain scores and 66% of them were pain-free or virtually pain-free. So people who started with all different, all different bodies, all different things, quote unquote, wrong with those bodies, all different lengths of time that they were in pain. I believe the average length that the person was in pain was 11 years. Okay. Um, by the end of those four weeks, 66% of them were just out of pain. And those results held after a year. And that was compared to 20% of um, people who, 66% were pain-free in the PRT group, those 20% in the placebo injection group and 10% in the treatment as usual group. Okay, interesting. Which the treatment as usual group may have a little bit of placebo effect, right? In that one too. Yeah, yeah right, right. And there was no, there was really no regulation on what they were doing. And some of those people might've yeah. been getting some form of something useful. It was just, they yeah. could do whatever they were doing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Okay, so hopefully that's um, hope for a lot of people listening who, well, it's not, the thing is, is that that study is not just for people with back pain, but it is, mm -hmm. like you were saying, um, but it is encouraging for people with back pain because we always want to hear <laughs> yeah. about our own symptoms, you know? Yeah, um, yeah they can be generalized for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so I forgot to mention this to you before we started, but I did ask um, my listeners if they had any questions for you. And oh, um, I got, I, I asked like last night, so I didn't, they didn't have very much time, but I got two questions and a comment and I do kind of want to prioritize those. I know I had another question that um, I wanted, to, that I we talked about talking about, but I want to put a pin in that if that's all right. And of course. first. Um, well, the first one was just a comment and the person wrote in all caps, I love her. <laughs> wow. I love that person right back. I, love I know. That. That's the kind of hype I need on a Friday. <laughs> it's funny because I loved her back too. Like I was like, yes, <laughs> it just was really sweet. Um, okay. And here's the, here's the other two questions. So first one is what are the three best practices to incorporate on a regular basis for pain-free maintenance? And is it necessarily to do them daily? I had a mild flare up and started asking myself if there's anything to trouble me. Um, there was a couple minor irritations. How can we affect what's happening at the subconscious level? So there's a lot of questions in there, but yeah, I'm happy. Those are great questions. And I'm happy to think of my kind of top three okay. hot maintenance pick um, tips that I still use. Yeah. Um, this is overstated and overshared for a reason. If you don't have some sort of meditative practice, I highly encourage you that, that you find one. And that does not need to look the same for all people. If you like mindfulness meditation where you're focusing on your breath for 10 minutes, amazing. If you like taking a walk in a mindful way where you keep bringing yourself back over and over and over to sights and sounds and smells of your walk. That's a meditative practice. If you love somatic tracking, you just can't get enough of it. And you want to keep using that even after you're out of pain. Wonderful. But the body, in my opinion, needs to be brought in in some way that helps you build connection and create like a, a, a safe pocket within you. And if in the absence of that, I think all of this is much more difficult to maintain. Yeah. So that would be my, my first suggestion. Secondly, and uh, this can also be done in a lot of different ways. We don't want to lose the thread in terms of where your mind is going throughout the day. So once you're out of 
the throes of chronic pain, you've, you've done a lot of work to help bring your brain away from um, pain-specific fear thoughts. So we're getting you out of that rumination around what's happening in my body and how is this going to interrupt my day and what do I need to do to make it through that meeting or that date or whatever. But your brain is still going to have a tendency to go certain directions. Like if you're, if you have a tendency to go towards worry or if you have a tendency to go towards intensity or pressure or criticism, like we don't want to lose our awareness of that. And and a simple, really simple way of, um, maintaining your awareness is a couple of times a day you can just build this into your morning or your evening you can do it at lunchtime it doesn't matter is stopping and literally asking yourself where where has my mind gone and just just noticing like in moments of stillness and notice moments of quiet where has my mind been like where where have I been where have I been living today Hmm. because whatever we're telling ourselves all day is impacting how we're feeling all the time so when you get out of treatment, it's easy to just let the chatter resume and to lose that sort of analysis and awareness of where your brain is going, but we don't want you to lose that. So check in with yourself. And a couple of times a day is great. If you can do this at the top of every hour or like just start start working in an awareness, it's even better. Just checking in like, where is my mind? Where is my mind going? Where have I been the past hour mentally? I, I like that question. I tend to ask myself, how are you doing? Um, but, but, um, I think that's more like, a. I think that gets at a heart level and and your question gets at a thought level too, which those things are definitely linked. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that one. I like it. (laughs) And then this is, um, I make a personal push for prioritizing the start of your day and having slowness at the start of your day. Uh, if, your nervous system resets in some ways overnight, we have a chance to input some data within that first 30 minutes or so. So I suggest not using, I really make a push for not using your phone in the first 30 minutes or your computer or whatever tablet sort of rushing you with information and helping set up your nervous system for the day by creating a slow and comfortable pace for the first 30 minutes. I think one of the worst things that we can do for our nervous system is start our day from a place of rush, like immediately offsetting your anxiety. When we feel like we're behind, our nervous system is going to start rushing internally because it feels like you're running from threat and you're not winning. <laughs> you're, yeah. You are good. The, the threat's coming from behind you. So I make a big push for comfortable mornings. Yeah. I cannot agree with you more. Um, people think I'm crazy, but in the middle of my healing journey, I, um, I decided to write down 10 things I didn't like that other people like and thought I'm, I'm going to work toward three of them. Um, uh-huh. um, and one of them was mornings. I, I didn't like mornings. Yeah. Um, and, and so, because I didn't like mornings that, and I didn't like getting up for many reasons, um, I left myself 12 minutes to get out of the house. And that included making my coffee. Um, and I did it and I was good at it and I was on time to work, you know, um, but I was dysregulated and stressed. And so in learning to like my mornings included getting up earlier and having quiet Mm -hmm. time for me, that's with God and enjoying my coffee, Mm -hmm. like sitting at my Mm -hmm. kitchen counter, Uh you know? And so I, 
I, I, I just agree with Christy. Yes. Um, so cool. that you, that you set up an actual established practice towards the goal and how, how neat to hear that your preference actually changed that you became in some ways uh, like a morning person. Well, I was like, oh, well, if neuroplasticity is a thing and my brain can perceive danger, it can also perceive to like things. And I have way more power over making my life enjoyable than I've ever been taught. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. So it it definitely, I don't know, it just changed. Um, there's so many things in our lives that we have to do on a daily basis. And if we can choose mm-hmm. to be present in them and enjoy them, like it's just helpful for our bodies. And Everything. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So those are your three. Um, did you have any other comments about the questions that were part of that first question? Can you remind me of some of the other pieces if I didn't address them? Yeah. Let's see. What are the three best practices to incorporate mm-hmm. on a regular basis? We did that. Um, is it necessary to do them daily? I had a mild flare up. I started asking myself if there's anything troubling me. There were a couple minor irritations. Mm-hmm. How can we affect what's happening at the unconscious or the subconscious level? Okay. Uh, it is not necessary to do these things daily as a rigid rule, but the more you're in practice with yourself, the more you're going to want to do them because you're going to notice the absence of them makes you feel badly. So there's a kind of a running start that you need in the beginning. Anytime you're developing any new habit, like if you're out of shape physically and you're like, I want to start speed walking or what have you those first few attempts you're like I didn't like that <laughs> that does not feel good I do not want to do it again tomorrow but once you're in the practice of it then you're getting the benefits of it so you're drawn to do it more anytime we're being rigid with ourselves we're trending back towards that intensity so listen listen to your body if, if for whatever reason you can't or don't want to or don't feel well enough to, of course, absolutely skip the day. That's how you're meeting your safety needs is by the rest. And then maybe you'll be feeling better enough tomorrow. In terms of the keeping track of stuff in your unconscious, you're in good company. None of us know what's going on in our unconscious. So that's perfectly normal. But the more that you stay in touch with how your body is somatically feeling and the more that you develop an awareness of where your brain is going throughout the day, somewhere in between those things where your mind is going, what your body is doing is the impact of everything that's in in our unconscious. So take a little bit of the pressure off of knowing what you were blind to and put the focus on committing to the impacts of that in how you're, where your mind is going and how your body is feeling. That's fantastic. Yeah. Pay attention to what we can be aware of instead of digging Mm -hmm. for the thing that we have no ability to find yeah Mm -hmm. okay next question yes since learning about mind-body syndrome and the impacts of fear and emotions I feel like I'm I think this is supposed to say I feel like I'm afraid of fear stress and worry and it's prolonging my symptoms how can I better balance understanding the psychological um, contributors to my symptoms without getting quote in my head about them and worrying about whether the stress, stressful situations coming up will cause a flare, whether I'm fearing too much, et cetera. So fear of fear. Fear of fear. Well, yeah, that's the spiral. Yeah. Uh, relate to it well. Um, I'm going to give, yeah, 
is a short answer. I want to give the re- my long answer. It's not too long. Okay. Um, yes. I think humans in general have a preference for a known threat as opposed to an unknown threat. So if I were to tell you right now, there's something in your space, which by the way is beautiful. I have been very calm the whole time looking at your little <laughs> physical face that you're in. Awesome. I were to tell you, there's something in there that could really severely harm you. Mm. And then I zip my weapons. I tell you, it's a totally unknown threat. What would you do? Where would you start? Is it something in the air? Is it something on the ground? Is someone is someone going to rush in and harm me? Is it expired food in my lunchbox? That's gonna what how can I make a plan? How can I army up if I have no idea what the threat is? Versus there's a very tiny poisonous spider on the upper right quadrant of your back window. I wouldn't be super jazzed about the spider, but I would be able to make a plan to keep myself safe. Yeah. I think zero people would choose the unknown threat. What would you do? You you would, how do you prepare yourself? It's extremely unsettling to not know where the threat is. Anytime our danger system goes off, the first thing our brain wants to do is understand what the, what the problem is so that you can move towards safety. Why do I bring this up? I want to be very clear. No one wants to be in pain. Pain sucks. You and I both know this. It takes over your life and your brain. We do not create it. We are not at fault for it. Most of the time, we are extremely motivated to get out of it. And there is something biologically attractive to the known threat of neural circuit pain. You can draw a box around all of the thoughts that come up as it relates to pain and your recovery. Like this person is saying, it's a never ending pool of worry thoughts. You not only are afraid of the sense of the, you're not only afraid, you're afraid of the fear. And then you're afraid of the fact that you can't get rid of your fear of the fear. And then you're critical of that. And then you're bounce, 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 bounce all day long. You can spend bouncing your brain around this problem of neural circuit pain. And I'm not saying that's comfortable. In fact, it's incredibly uncomfortable, both physically and mentally. But on a biological level, we are going to be drawn to that over allowing our brain to leave that contained box and start bouncing around to all the other uncertainties of our lives, our environment, and the world around us. Things we both know about and we don't know about. Again, our unconscious has tons of uncertainties. We literally don't know what's back there. And then life, living life on earth, comes with tons of uncertainties. So there is something that we prefer to that contained threat. What we can do about that on a day-to-day basis is helping ourselves better understand the mechanism with which our brain pulls us into that box and then practicing this idea of it is possible for me to tolerate the unknown. It is possible for me to sit in this moment of uncertainty. It's possible for me to redirect my brain back towards again, away from that box of pain-related thoughts and see what comes up for me next. I can tolerate that. I can tolerate the broader fear. I can tolerate the broader uncertainty. I can tolerate the broader emotions or emotional conflicts. Mm-hmm. So yes, there's a lot of work we can do within the box. You can practice somatic tracking. You can breathe. You can notice your fear thoughts as they pop up and redirect. You can lean into positive sensations. You can lean into positive relationships in your life. And you shouldn't stop doing those things. Those are important techniques. But that question to me speaks to the spiral is so strong and I can't stop the spiral. I want to encourage that person to think about maybe there's a reason the spiral is so strong. 
And maybe some of the work that I need to do is practicing tolerating my fear outside of the pain-related box. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say that we're moving from that space of being stuck in that fear cycle to saying, okay, I'm going to take the leap of faith that I am empowered enough to, to start the process of um, looking at the source of what is really sending my, my, my brain into that first cycle of fear. Yeah. Um, and I'm, and, and I'm going to put on this, this bravery and this courage and, mm -hmm. and um, weather this storm for a minute and see yep. what it's like. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's described quite beautifully. It's scary to do, of course, uh -huh. but it's, it's possible in a lot of ways it's necessary. The way that we're showing up towards our symptoms is generally the way that we're showing up towards life and all of its uncertainties. And again, it's not to, to minimize the importance of pain specific tools, they are important, but just something to think about that as awful as it is, the box, the containment that not only pain, but pain's recovery can provide for a person going through it in some way, like we appreciate being contained, even if we're stuck in an uncomfortable space. We appreciate it because mm -hmm. it's comfortable, but no, not, they're very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not the way mm -hmm. out. It's the yeah. way to stay. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's quite, it's quite literally the way to be in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, we were going to, um, we were going to talk a little bit about that very subject of outside of PRT, but our time is getting mm -hmm. close to up. So, um, just kind of in, I, I feel like ending in in that arena though. Um, can we can we talk? I, I one question that I get a lot or I hear a lot is people saying, um, "I'm I'm just not very emotionally aware," um, and mm -hmm. so they've come to realize, "Okay, yeah, this is probably TMS. This is mind body syndrome, um, neural circuit pain." But um, I, I I just I'm unaware. I don't know. I see the symptom here and, and maybe their threshold is still up here, right? Like yeah. when, when it's down here, it's so much easier to hear that one message, but when we're up here, um, it, it can be, if we're not emotionally aware, it can be difficult. So do you have any, um, I don't know, tips or ways that you help people to, mm -hmm. to start that process of identifying some of those yeah. voices that we're hearing at that really loud dinner? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So this is where one-on-one -on -one or group recovery work, but particularly one-on-one -on -one, one -on -one work can be really useful. But I wanna give a technique that can be done at home because I want people from all, no matter what is going on, you, you, this is something that you can access. So uh, emotions start out as something that we feel quite naturally. If you think about a baby, they're not, they're not clamping down on their emotional states. So you think, I have a three-year-old, that girl's, crazy she feels everything the idea of her hiding her feelings would be crazy to her she feels them very loudly they're really big um and I love her for that and many other reasons so we come into this world with an innate sense of connection to our feelings we learn to send them away we're taught to send them away yeah so that's the we don't want to lose sight of that that our body wants to be in touch with our feelings and that there's something has come and interrupted that innate connection and a, a lot of the times that this presents 
in session with my clients and in the pain recovery world is the, the blanket on top of our feelings is nervous system activation. Where our anxiety is so loud, first of all, it's blocking our access to feeling feelings physically. My friend Daniel Lyman always says feelings are called feelings, not thinking. We yeah. can feel them. But if our anxiety is really strong and we have a, a ton of tension or a ton of pain or that like awful fluttery anxiety feeling coursing through our veins, the anxiety is blocking our access to feeling the emotion underneath it. Yeah. And then anxious thoughts are so loud that there's no room for emotional, there's no room for emotions. There's no room for that to come up because the anxiety is so loud. So the best way to allow yourself to get back in touch with what you're feeling naturally is bringing your anxiety level down. Because when your anxiety level drops, you don't have to think about emotions coming up. I've had this happen in sessions a million times that we can downregulate someone, tears just start falling. And this is someone who would tell me, I haven't, I haven't cried in a decade. Their sadness is totally scared. I don't feel sad, I don't know. It just, when the anxiety comes down, the tears start flowing naturally. You're not trying. Right. So you can, you can literally practice this. You can find a safe place in your environment, uh, on your couch, in your bed. You can sit, you can lie down, close your eyes and practice calming your body for 10 minutes. And again, this can look a lot of different ways. If you don't know where to start, YouTube a mindfulness meditation, that's uh, do something to bring your awareness to your body, to your breath for about 10 minutes. Once your anxiety has come down a little bit, then call to mind something that either you know is upsetting you, upset and upset any type of emotional charge. It can be anger, it can be sadness, it can be disappointment. Or if you don't even know that, if you're like, I don't know, I feel totally unaffected, call to mind something that you think one might be affected by, like you maybe should have been affected by. And you don't need to start with your 10 out of 10s. You don't need to start with the worst thing. In fact, I encourage you that you do not do that. Yeah. You can start with something way like a more of a murmur of an emotional experience and just call that situation to mind. And then once you've called it into your mind, bring your awareness back into your body. Feelings are meant to be felt. Start at the top of your head, slow body scan of awareness all the way down to your feet to just ask yourself, am I feeling anything right now? And you do not need to say, yes, it's sadness, there are tears, or yes, it's anger, I'm labeling it anger, and, I, and I, it makes me want to do something with that anger. No, just actually notice, do I have a felt physical sensation right now? We can worry about the labeling later. Sadness is often felt as like a heaviness behind the eyes or heaviness in your chest. Anger is often felt as like a heat that's rising or coming down your arms. You don't even need to worry about that yet. Just see if you can have a connection, a physical connection to whatever the emotional experience was that you drew to mind. You can run through that. You can go, you can start back at the top and run through this three times. You don't need to meditate again for a full 10 minutes if you don't have that much time to spare, but do another wash. Go back and say, okay, I'm going to come back to my breath for two minutes. Calm my system back down. Bring the emotional experience to the top of your mind. Yeah. Body scan your way through and check for the feeling. Don't, again, don't worry about labeling. Just uh, I always say the ask is the task. So if you are asking yourself, what am I noticing? Is this affecting me in any way? You're already winning. Don't worry about the labeling. Don't worry if you don't even feel anything. The first time you might not, you can practice again tomorrow. So the ask is the task, asking yourself, how am I affected by this experience? What's going on for me right now? Yeah.
um, people often get confused between paying attention to how they feel emotions show up in their body and Mm -hmm. they just gravitate towards the pain. Right. So, mm-hmm. so all of a sudden you're, you're trying to find an emotional, you know, where, let's say sorrow, you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to find if you have an emotional reaction, reaction to something. And all you can see is that, um, that symptom. And I think, um, yeah. if I'm understanding you correctly, that's, um, uh, you use the example of anxiety as a symptom and we're moving past it. So we're doing the deregulation in order mm-hmm. to move past that anxiety so that we're not blocked by it. Um, yeah. but that, I guess, I guess what I am saying is this is true of pain too, right? Like we, yeah, we're looking yeah, at the symptom yeah. of pain. We've got to calm down a little bit, get mm-hmm. our, try to get our, our nervous system regulated a little bit. So, so would you say if somebody is in, let's say an eight or a nine and they're, they're mm-hmm. of their symptom level and um, they're, they're wanting to figure out what's happening emotionally. Um, is that, is that a good time at, at, at that high of a number to, to do this type of a process, or do you feel like it's better to do it at a point where you can move that needle a little bit on your symptoms? That's a great question. A great, great question. I think it is um, significantly better to do it at a time when the intensity of your pain is lower or your activation around the intensity of your pain is lower. It's, I don't even think it's, I don't even ask my clients to have an inward focus very much when they're in that much pain, even if they are hundred percent confident. My pain is neural circuit. I'm not technically afraid of the source of the symptom. When your pain level is that high, it's nearly biological, biologically impossible to have a, an intentional focus on it without your nervous system upregulating. So the first, first, first task for that person. And again, there's lots of people in this situation. This does not mean it's hopeless by any means. You're again, you're in sort of the bulk of the people that I see anyway, if you fit in that category of I'm not ready for that. My pain is so high. We're not there quite yet then. Our first step, again, is that down regulation, getting your fear and your fear level down around the pain, which will eventually bring the pain level itself down. Then we can take a look at the emotional stuff. And there's no rush. You can't, we have to do these things in the order that makes sense with our bodies. And that's not wrong or bad. And there's, there's a patience there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about, yes, yes. Uh, we've talked about just pressure and how much pressure we get from culture and how that internalizes into our system. We've talked about edu- pain neuroscience, education, PRT, and how that's so important, especially when we're looking at normal abnormalities. Beyond that, down regulating and emotionally feeling, like not thinking your feelings, like you were saying, mm-hmm. feeling your feelings. Um, Anything else? I have two questions for you. One is anything else you want to see say, and then where can people find you? I'm going to put all your info in the show notes, stuff like that. Only other thing I want to say is for anyone who's listening to this, I'm assuming that they're committed to their recovery. And if um, mm-hmm. at any part, anything we said felt frustrating, like I can't access that yet, or I tried that and it hasn't worked for me yet. We often in the recovery world speak to the ideal situation. Even PRT at large is kind of packaged in a way that we can make it make sense to the masses. It is very normal to have individualized barriers and speed bumps and to spend a month on a step that another person spent two seconds on. And uh, it, I, I just can't say that enough, that there's a 
people put a lot of pressure on themselves to self recover from chronic pain. It's amazing that we have resources out there to help us do that. And it's very difficult to be your own teacher and, and be the student at the same time. So yeah, just keep at it, just keep at it and know there is no, there's no one look of recovery. There's no one pace of recovery. And if you're listening to this, you're probably one of the people who needs a little bit of extra care in terms of your relationship to fear. And that's, you can have feelings around that. You can be, I can, you have feelings around that. You don't have to be completely at peace with it, but I want you to know that it's normal and your hopefulness should not be impacted by the pace at which you're recovering. That's, that's so good. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. We need to be seen yeah. in that space. Yeah. Big time. Big time. And then people can find me. I'd love to connect. I'd love to connect with people with questions about what we talked about or if people want to reach out. Um, my team is called Better Mind Center. You can find us at bettermindcenter.com. And then I'm on Instagram at better.with.christy, better with Christy. Okay. And do you, if, if people schedule with you, are they, do they, do they do one-on-one um, sessions? Are you taking clients mm-hmm. right now? Okay. Currently, I am transitioning away from taking on new clients myself. I'm doing more research and training. Oh, it's a big reason why I, I have so much trust in the team. So everyone works from the same model. I can, I would spend another hour and a half just talking about how obsessed I am with the people on my team. They're so great. <laughs> so there, there are ways to access, there's plenty of ways to access one-on-one help through this model, even if I'm not taking new clients myself. Okay. Yeah. And you have a beautiful website, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I have enjoyed this. It's just straight up. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Thank you. Um, So thanks just for all the nuggets for caring for your research. Um, I didn't realize you were headed in that direction. um, So I didn't realize your compass was that far in that direction. So that, I don't know, for people like me, that's really encouraging because I, I am not going in that route and we, we need that for sure. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing for the positive space that you settled into in this niche for the welcoming environment that you've created for us. I've had a blast. Thank you so much. Awesome. All right. Thank you. And, um, Let's just say goodbye to all the watchers and we'll see you you next week. Bye.